Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we do our weekly political roundup with Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Climate action requires bold leadership. Is Canada doing its part to avoid catastrophic climate impacts? And is the end of the road for Donald Trump? We'll do our weekly Washington report with Reggie Cicchini from Washington and Global News. And it's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It's our uh, weekly roundup of Canadian politics. Uh, lots going on here, of course, last week with Pierre Polyev's first day, as uh, first week, rather, as the opposition leader. And uh, he and the prime minister finally uh, had a face-to-face, of course, on Thursday during question period. Lots of other things going on as well. And to do uh, all of that, we're so pleased to welcome back Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Hope you had a good weekend. Hey, Bill. I did. I had a great weekend. Thank you. Good. Uh, let's let's you know, I, as we are sitting here right now. By the way, there's a, a gaggle of uh, cabinet ministers that are announcing the uh, the border measures expiring on September 30th, which is probably the worst kept secret in Ottawa over the last couple of days. Uh, but among those is the Arrive Canada app, which they say now is going to be optional. Uh, and coincidentally, the Arrive Canada app, controversial Arrive Canada app, you, know, you pretty much hear those same two words every time you use that. Uh, was in the news this Sunday as uh, the Nova Scotia government has said that. Uh, People were denied, the Americans that were heading across the border uh, to help out with the cleanup uh, in Nova Scotia and Newfoundland were denied access, or at least delayed access, uh, because they didn't have the Arrive Canada app. Now, the government has, has said that didn't happen at all, but uh, late, late yesterday, of course, the Nova Scotia premiers doubled down on that and said, yeah, it did happen. Now, this is a conservative prime premier and a liberal prime minister. I don't know if there's politics involved in this. Uh, I don't know what's going on here, but uh, it's, it's just one other example, I guess, about the Arrive Canada app and the problems it's causing some people. Yeah, exactly. Like, just on the on the point about the d- political difference between the premier and the prime minister, like, Tim Houston really strikes me as somebody who does not get into partisan politics at all, whether you like him or you don't. He's this sort of like, I want to be everybody's premier kind of guy. And he does, he's actually said like during his campaign last year, he told people that he was more like Justin Trudeau than he was like Aaron O'Toole, which sucked for Aaron O'Toole at the time. But Houston doesn't, <laughs> like, he, I don't think he cares, right? Like, he's just, he, you know, he's that kind of guy. And so I doubt it has has anything to do with trying to score much like, you know, I am frustrating as like Nova Scotia, I think I'm not there, I'm in Ottawa, but I think, um, you know, a mm-hmm. lot, they, they dealt with a lot over the weekend with Hurricane Fiona, not the kind of tragedy I think that we see in Newfoundland, but like for Houston, he's, he's out there trying to make sure people have power, people have food, people know what's going on. And so to have this sort of thing, I think he wants to make sure that people understand this is a border arrive, you know, arrive can kind of problem. This is not you know what? I tell you what, we're breaking up just a little bit here, Lori. So I'm going to tell you what, we're going to do a quick break here. I uh, know, actually, you know what? I'll let uh, Alicia can handle all this stuff. And, and I'll just kind of hope and fill in until we can get the line cleaned up here just a little bit. Uh, talking with Dr. Lori Turnbull from Dalhousie University about uh, some of the events going on last week in Ottawa as uh, MPs uh, got back to work. And uh, it was a rather feisty uh, question period with uh, Pierre Polyev. Uh, well, the first day or so, of course, uh, there was no prime minister because he was busy. He was in New York City. Well, first of all, attending the Queen's funeral on Monday. 
and then uh, in New York for the opening of the United Nations and uh, a full agenda there. And he was back to work on Thursday. And uh, they had a little session there between the two of them about some of the key issues that are going on these days. Uh, the story we're talking about right now, though, uh, has to do with uh, some assertions by uh, Premier Houston of uh, Nova Scotia uh, that the Arrive Canada app actually held up uh, some people that were coming across the border. As we found out through the course of the weekend, uh, Nova Scotia and the state of Maine have a kind of reciprocal agreement that uh, when catastrophic weather occurs and there are emergencies such as we saw this past weekend, uh, that there's a, a, a an understanding that they will help each other out, just zoom across the border and do what they can. And I guess that's what was try that's what they were trying to do. Uh, and the story is, is the Canada Border Services Agency uh, says uh, that uh, they have no record of this, but uh, the Maine government and now the Nova Scotia government are saying did, and it uh, it's it's caused some consternation here. And uh, Dr. Turnbull was just making the point that uh, the Premier Houston is not one who's prone to be playing politics like some other premiers might in situations like that. I guess the other aspect of this too, Laurie, is given what we know about the Arrive Canada app and the way that some people have, have, have kind of clung to this, uh, including some people to border security, uh, it's feasible that this did happen. Whether they want to deny it or not, it, it sounds like something that could happen, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It fits with the narrative, although I don't, again, I don't think this is a narrative Tim Houston's been pushing at all, but it fits with a narrative that Pierre Polyev has been pushing around just government not having things put together and there being problems by way of just kind of basic service delivery and issues, especially with regard to travel and inconsistency with experience at the border. And this all really comes down to the issue of government competence. And so I think Polyev's got some interesting choices to make, whether he really wants to go at the Liberals heavy over any particular ideological thing. I think that there's a, a lot to be said for him pushing some points around just lack of service delivery, lack of consistency from the government, n not, you know, not being in tune with what you're really living and doing something about it and just waiting for the voter fatigue to set in with the Liberals. And so something like this, Polly, I've even just imagined him like throwing up his hands and saying, oh, God, this is one more time that the Liberals screw something up. Let's talk a little bit about that uh, and, and his strategy uh, as, as the opposition leader. As we mentioned, he made his debut in that position last week. Uh, and the Prime Minister was not present. Uh, when the Prime Minister did show up on Thursday after his uh, trip to New York, uh, Polyev criticized him for not being in the House uh, for these past three or four days. Uh, do we draw from that that, uh, that the, uh, the opposition leader, Mr. Polyev, uh, disagrees with the Prime Minister going to the Queen's funeral? Uh, or well, the United Nations, maybe, because, I mean, he's, he's, you know, he's attacked just about every other institution from the World Economic Summit to the Bank of Canada. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't like the UN either. I don't know. But doesn't our <laughs> prime minister of this country have an obligation for some of these things? Well, I mean, exactly. Everyone would expect the prime minister would show up at a UN meeting. And, you know, yes, I, I think the, it's funny, though. It's, it's interesting the position that the conservatives are in with respect to the Queen's funeral, the role of the monarchy, and how much, you know, they're they're expressing condolences and things like that. So, like, last, I guess it was um, like two weeks ago now, when Polyev was chosen the leader at that convention, they had all kinds of tributes to the Queen. That was a big part of the theme of the evening, was to show this, you know, respect for all she had done service-wise and to show how important the monarchy is in Canada and the relationship with the Queen. But I think that that has been traditionally an important part of the progressive conservative party and the sense that we have these institutions that we are 
uh, part of and that are very important and they're part of civility and politics and, and, you know, this is a really big thing for Canada kind of thing. But I think newer iterations of the Conservative Party may not feel that way. And so Polyev, I think, has a little bit of, a, uh, you know, a gap to fill around how exactly he's going to play issues like that. And then I think there are risks when you stand up as opposition leader and suggest that the prime minister shouldn't be doing his job on a global scale, to be honest. To the extent that anybody takes those comments seriously, they're going to be like, well, what? You know, you really expect him not to go to a UN meeting? He wasn't supposed to show up at the funeral for the queen? Then there would have been a, where the heck was he? You know, so like, I, it's, I yeah. think there's probably a sense that Polyev's going to find fault with anything that Trudeau does or, or doesn't do. I, I just found it to be rather petty, uh, especially yeah. it's not as if there's a lack of other issues for him to jump all over. And, uh, uh, you know, why pick on something like this? I mean, he was out of their own business. It happens. His old boss used to do that, too. Uh, you know, Stephen Harper did a lot of globetrotting uh, back and forth for a number of different issues. It goes with the job. And and as we said, there's a lot of other things that are, are going on these days, including the relief package. And I know that uh, earlier in the week, uh, Mr. Pauly have criticized uh, the Trudeau government's uh, initiatives, shall we say, to try to give some relief for some of the people that are really getting hit hard by inflation, uh, including the GST rebate. Uh, now we find on the weekend, Andrew Shear was on uh, one of the Sunday morning uh, political shows and said that uh, the Conservatives are going to support this. So is that a backtrack on Pauly F's part? So this is a really interesting thing, how Polyev is going to use his caucus members in order to carry messages for him and possibly to let him play different sides of an issue. Cause I think, you know, on the one hand, the conservatives want to find again, find fault with anything the liberals do, no matter what they do, it's going to be, this is not enough or this isn't the right solution or this isn't even the right definition of the problem. You're not doing what you need to do and no one's going to care about an extra 500 bucks and blah, blah, blah. And I saw, I watched the, a, a clip of it last night that he's talking about, like if you if you break it down to the rent relief that the liberals are suggest, are wanting to do, it comes out to like forty bucks a day or something or you know something like forty bucks a month. And who cares about that? Like I'm getting the numbers wrong here, but essentially it's you you're not going to feel any of this. The liberals aren't really going to do enough for you. But on the other hand, it is a conservative. It's usually something that the conservatives would support is to put money back in people's pockets. So at the same time as Polyev is talking about how this isn't enough, he's also saying, yeah, but, you know, you need more money in your pocket to, as he says, buy a good life. And so I wonder if he's going to take to the pulpit sort of thing to make these big, you know, visionary statements about how the liberals aren't doing enough, but then leave it to caucus members like Sheer, who, you know, has enough name recognition, I think, that people kind of know who he is. Mm -hmm. to then come and say, well, no, we're going to support this because conservatives do support giving money back to Canadians to do what you need to do with it, and we trust you to make your own judgments about that. And that way the conservatives don't get stuck in the House trying to defend why they didn't support it. I, so I do see this as, like, not necessarily a backtrack. It's just trying to have both sides at the same time. And I think we're going to see more of that. Yeah, and the old adage is, you know, if you have to deliver bad news, i.e., you know, we're going to change our policy, uh, you don't have the leader do it. I mean, you know, the, the leader does yeah. good news, that criticizes. You do somebody else in there. And, and Sheer, I guess, was the obvious person to, to have that done. Uh, which leads us, uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you about, and we always look at polls, and there are so many different polling organizations these days. Uh, Main Street uh, came out with a poll over the weekend, uh, which shows the Conservatives with a rather significant lead. I mean, we're talking like almost double-digit lead uh, against uh, Trudeau and the Liberals. Uh, I... I, I 
I, I always am cautious of lease poles, but especially Main Street, because they always seem to be off the beaten track for most of the other poles. Leger, Avocus, and the other ones all have, you know, different methodologies, etc. But Main Street just seems to be out there. And I, I find oftentimes a lot of their poll results just don't really match uh, what eventually happens or how people are actually feeling. But it is what it is. And we also know that new party leaders of any political stripe usually have a honeymoon period. And Paulie is certainly enjoying that right now. And uh, there is, as you mentioned, some fatigue about this government right now among Canadian voters. Do you buy those numbers, or, or is it a lot closer than you might think? I think that, um, like, I, I know what you're saying. Like, I've seen different polls that have said different things. Some polls have the NDP experiencing a bump. None of the polls seem to have the Liberals having all that great a day. And no. all of the polls seem to be giving now some sense that, yes, like, Polyev is getting a bump out of his leadership, which didn't seem to be happening at first, but now maybe it is. I mean, if he's really in that kind of territory, like that's majority government territory, I, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around that because I think there's also enough polling data to indicate that Polyev's growth is somewhat limited in that even though he's getting, I think, a little, like he's getting more well-known to people, he's going to have more name recognition, he's going to have more exposure and if he tries to soften his image a bit, he might have more appeal to people. And his appeal is going to perhaps, you know, find more significance to people. And he may become more appealing to people as the years go on. And again, we're getting up to that 10-year anniversary of the Liberals' win in 2015. And people are looking for something else to happen. And to the extent that Polyev is standing in the right place at the right time, it doesn't look like an absolutely terrible choice. He may just benefit from all of that. But I do think there's a limit to how much he can grow. He still has, he is still a polarizing person. Like he totally is. The fact that he won with two thirds of the vote on the first ballot in that, in that leadership selection makes him look less polarizing. It makes him look like there's a growing consensus around him. And that's not really true. The conservatives are all in on him, but other people are not. And so his challenge is going to be, how do I become you know, more of a reasonable place to park a vote for somebody who's tired of voting liberal or doesn't really want to, you know, doesn't doesn't want to see the same thing happen over and over again. And I don't know how close he is to that. I think he's, I mean, I think to the extent that we might be three years before the next election, that might work out quite well for Polyev in the sense that it gives him enough time to depolarize himself and become a little bit more of somebody who doesn't have such, like, who doesn't trigger such a strong reaction in people. Because if, if he's that then he's not going to be able to grow enough, really, to be able to be in, a, a, in any kind of majority territory. And if he's got a minority, who's going to support him? I got about a minute left, but just on your point about conservatives rallying around him, that's what they all want them to do. But there were a lot of disenchanted conservatives before he actually won on that first ballot. I, I, I believe, I think you're right, the caucus is certainly behind him, and all, if not universally. I mean, most of them are. But there, no, those centerized, well, conservatives, and I'll call themselves centerized Canadians and others that were not happy with the way that uh, the party was moving. Uh, the, you know, the ex-progressive conservatives, I guess. Uh, I don't think there's anybody going to do a revolt here. But I mean, it, there, it's, I don't think there's one big happy family there. I think there's still some consternation. 100%. I think there absolutely is. I think there's a palpable sense of, of political orphanhood that is becoming a much broader constituency than you know it was even a couple of years ago i think there are a lot of people who feel like none of these parties is saying anything that makes me feel comfortable that they understand me that you know i'm comfortable giving them my support 
And so I think there are disgruntled, you know, historical liberal voters who don't like the way Justin Trudeau is doing things and mm-hmm. don't like the way this government communicates. And so is there a way for the party system to respond to this growing constituency of political orphans? It would seem to be the smart thing to do. As always, Laurie, thanks so much for this. Uh, have a great week, and we'll talk again soon. Take care, Bill. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, Director of School for Public Administration at Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The United Nations official now in charge of the fight to curb climate change has a personal stake in the battle, he says, to reduce emissions. Simon Steele is a former engineer and the Environment and Climate Resilience Minister on a small island of Grenada. Uh, says he's seen up close just how climate change can really devastate communities. I know what it's like to live. I've lived through two hurricanes. I've seen my country flattened um, through hurricanes. I've seen the sea levels rise around my ankles. I've seen the effects. So how are we going to do a a battle plan here to try to do something about climate change? Well, uh, there seems to be a a great deal of discrepancy about exactly how to approach this, especially within the Canadian government. Uh, And uh, we need climate action. We know that. We need to consider alternative fuels. Yeah, we get that too. But we could be overlooking, especially in this country, an obvious choice to try to mitigate the impact that's going to have on the environment and on us in our pocketbooks, and that's nuclear power. And uh, let's talk about that. Uh, to do that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Chris Kiefer. Uh, Dr. Kiefer is the president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Thanks for having me back, Bill. Uh, the press release they saw, and I'll just bring it to our listeners' attention again. Uh, in April of this year, 10,000 Canadians signed a House of Commons petition calling on the federal government to include nuclear energy within what they call the Green Bond Framework. Uh, they didn't do that. As a matter of fact, uh, w- w- the, the nuclear energy itself, or I guess the concept of it really, doctor, is almost in- included with the syntaxes, you know, tobacco and alcohol and, and arms manufacturing. I mean, uh, somebody's got a real problem with nuclear energy, but I think, you know, we're the worst off for it, aren't we? You know, Bill, <clears throat> nuclear energy has done really amazing things right here in Ontario. Um, we have accidentally taken amazing climate action because we built these nuclear stations in the 80s and 90s. But they've delivered us one of the cleanest electricity grids in the world. And we know that the response to climate change is fundamentally an energy transition involving building a great, big, clean electricity grid. We've done that right here. So it's very puzzling that our financing mechanisms are excluding nuclear energy. And as you mentioned, excluding them alongside the so-called sin stocks when when they've done so much good. So we're, we're we're in a strange situation, Bill. And... You know, we we crafted this petition. It was the second most popular petition in the economy and finance category um, in the House of Commons. It's a neat thing. You can you can get a petition um, read or in on the floor of the House of Commons, and the government is forced to respond. Um, Christia Freeland um, and Minister Wilkinson did respond to that petition, and basically they said that you know we need to stay with the pack here. We need to kind of do what everyone else is doing. And I'll be the first to admit, around the world, a lot of green financing mechanisms exclude nuclear energy. And, and this is because of a really long-standing problem that we have with not understanding this technology, not appreciating it. But there have been big changes in green finance. And, you know, my organization says we need to lead. We need to be in front of the pack. And we need to be doing what the European Union just did, which is including nuclear within their sustainable finance taxonomy. Um, the South Korean president just visited on Friday. Um, South Korea has just included nuclear. So Canada has a real opportunity here, and, and we're missing it. And, and frankly, this is a failure of leadership. 
I, there's a lot of concern about what's going on in Europe right now with energy, of course. And I think you and I talked about that the last time you were on the program. Uh, you know, Germany was talking about decommissioning. And then, you know, because I guess they figured out oh, we're always going to have Russian fuel. We're going to be fine. Thank you very much. How's that working out? Uh, and now they, there's a lot of, I know, some consternation in Germany right now that maybe they need to backtrack about this. Is, 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 are we still doing with stigma here when it comes to nuclear energy? We are. We are. I mean, we're seeing a massive turnaround, though, globally. In, uh, in the U.K., they're committing to building eight new large reactors. France is talking about building 14. Japan is restarting its nuclear fleet. South Korea, as I mentioned, <coughs> making a, a major pivot back towards nuclear. And even the really anti-nuclear countries, like you mentioned, Germany, um, they've given pause to their nuclear phase-out. I will say we had really bad news on Friday. Um, Belgium, which relies for nuclear for, just like Ontario, really, for 50% of its electricity, again, delivering a very clean electricity grid, just shut down a reactor that provides 10% of the power to that country. And this is in the midst of the greatest energy crunch since the OPEC crisis in Europe. It's utter insanity. And... <clears throat> You know, the politicians that are behind this are from the Green Party. The, the Minister of Energy in Belgium is, uh, is a Green. Um, she actually was a lawyer who represented a subsidiary of the Russian firm Gazprom. She's lobbied for gas plants. Um, so we're, we're in a really strange situation here where we have, you know, Green Party members and environmentalists literally lobbying to replace nuclear with fossil fuels. Um, so it's, it's a strange situation. Um, but we do have a big opportunity right here in Ontario in particular um, to do what's right by the climate, to do what's right by the economy. Um, but what we need is access to affordable capital um, in order to continue to maintain and build out our nuclear fleet, which uh, I'll argue is really the best thing we can do here, um, again, for climate and the economy. But is, is the, the Greens' advocacy for this just based on a, a philosophical bent? Here, because uh, yeah, I remember the story back in the beginning of the summer, the Green Party in uh, Sweden, I guess it was, which, which is part of the coalition government there, actually finally acquiesced and said that, yeah, maybe nuclear power should be part of the solution going forward here. And I know a lot of people got ticked off at them for that, but I thought it was a rather pragmatic approach. Yeah, we actually talked about that, Bill. It was uh, the Green Party of Finland. Um, Finland, very, I'm sorry. A very enlightened Green Party. Um, I mean, Finland's an amazing country. You need a master's degree to teach kindergarten there. Highly educated. Um, people have a lot of faith in their institutions and in science. And yes, I mean, that's the exception to the rule. Um, you know, fortunately, they made that step. But, you know, as you mentioned, most Green Parties around the world are still uh, in lockstep opposed to, to nuclear energy. And it's really hard to tell what they believe in anymore because when they're advocating for, you know, shutting down nuclear and increasing coal or increasing gas, I mean, that is not good for the environment in any way, shape or form. Um, you know, I, I am hopeful, again, that, um, you know, we're, we're moving forward. Um, obviously, there's a lot of fear of nuclear energy, particularly in the boomer generation, and that's very understandable given, you know, growing up under the fear of nuclear weapons. Um, but again, as the threat of climate change really emerges um, as, as the new kind of potential apocalypse or catastrophe, um, we really have an opportunity to re-examine this technology um, and see, again, what it's done for us. Ontario is a really shining example. Um, we are refurbishing our nuclear fleet to provide us an extra 30 or 40 years of ultra-low emissions uh, power, um, but we need to do more. Um, you know, Belgium is shutting down this nuclear plant, 10% of their electricity. Ontario is planning on shutting down the Pickering nuclear station. That's 15% of Ontario's electricity. Um, 
we, we have big opportunities here. If we don't save that plant and refurbish it, we need to build new nuclear, and green bond financing will help that. We have 30,000 skilled tradespeople involved in these refurbishments. Every dollar that we invest in nuclear here in Ontario, we get a dollar forty back in GDP uh, because we control the supply chain, because we pay good wages to skilled workers who spend that money within their communities. It's a great investment. Um, so we need to catch up with the times. We need to lead the pack, um, not stick around with folks like Belgium and Germany and Austria who are anti-nuclear and maintain uh, this, these opinions, which are really stuck in old prejudices from the past. Um, we need to lead, and, and we have an opportunity to do that. And I, I am confident that our arguments will win out. Well, it's a little disturbing, I guess. I mean, you know, I think even if you only have a cursory knowledge of what's going on in the world, you can, you can see what's going on in the world. We just saw it in the East Coast on the weekend with climate change and the impact that this is having. So we understand there's a sense of urgency here. But when Germany first announced that they were going to decommission their plants, I mean, they, they were seriously considering, and I guess in some cases we're more than seriously considering, going back to coal. Uh, haven't we learned anything? They have gone massively back to coal. It's, it's incredible. And I mean, the dirtiest coal in the world, this is lignite coal. It's basically just dirt. Um, and it, it creates, you know, has a lot of impurities in it, a lot of heavy metals. Um, those plants are spewing out, you know, poisonous particulate matter, sulfur dioxide, um, not just in their own country, but around the entire EU. Um, and it's absolutely a nuclear to coal transition in Germany happening right now. You know, coal, despite spending $500 billion on a wind and solar driven uh, energy transition, coal is still the number one source of electricity on the German grid. I mean, this is a shocking failure. And Canada has a lot to learn from the European energy crisis right now. And that is that, you know, a wind and solar based transition is on the back of fossil fuels. And if fossil fuels get expensive, uh, if fossil fuels get, uh, you know, difficult to access because of geopolitical concerns, the whole house of cards falls apart. You know, we got rid of coal in Ontario. We did that with nuclear energy, which provided 90% of the power required. You know, I'm a medical doctor. I've seen the impacts on people with respiratory disease. You know, the Ontario Medical Association suggests that we've saved six to 700 lives every single year by getting rid of coal. We did that with nuclear energy. And that story is not being told. So again, you know, folks um, that are passionate, uh, folks in our group, um, are really trying to bring that to the public's attention because, you know, we need to really re-examine, uh, again, some of these prejudices and we need to get with the times and do the right thing. Let's, uh, let's backtrack just a bit and talk a little bit about Pickering. Um, I'm sure many of us are familiar with the plant and the operation and it's been around for some time, but we're told now, at least this is one of the, the excuses that the government is saying, is that the cost to, to, to revamp that plant and get it up and running and modernize it is prohibitive. Uh, do they also factor in the cost of not doing that and where we're going to be? You know, we think it actually is, other than building new gas plants, which looks like what is the plan, there is no faster or more affordable way to get that clean baseload electricity on the grid. Um, you know, it, there is a price tag associated with it. Um, it's about one-sixth of the cost of all of the wind and solar that we've been building in Ontario. Again, that wind and solar has not replaced uh, fossil fuels to a large degree. Um, it's not been an effective investment um, because, you know, wind, for instance, it produces power when we don't really need it. They go crazy in the in the spring and fall on that hot summer humid day when everyone's got their air conditioners cranked and you'd kill to have a breeze. It doesn't show up. It underperforms. And, you know, we're seeing that in Germany. Uh, a couple of days ago, those three remaining nuclear plants, 
that's four gigawatts of, of installed capacity outperformed the entire wind fleet, 60 gigawatts of wind, just because, you know, wind, it's, it's, it's whimsical, right? You're at the mercy of the weather. Um, and so we can make a smart investment um, and, and maintain our climate leadership, maintain a secure grid. And again, every dollar we invest, that stays in the Ontario economy. We have a 96% made in Canada supply chain. That's energy security. That's good jobs, good blue collar jobs. Um, and that's money that circulates within the Canadian economy. So, you know, we're very lucky with nuclear to have something that's good for climate, um, that's that's good for the economy. Those are kind of a, a, a rare um, a rare combination. At what point, is there a point you can point to here, Doctor, and say that's that's where nuclear fell into disfavor? Because it used to be, as especially here in Ontario, as you mentioned, uh, not just a viable alternative, but it was going to be the foundation for our energy needs for the longest time. Uh, because of, of how long this thing could actually be up and running and, and, and not just to go back to coal. But, I mean, you know, in other words, I don't think anybody has said nuclear alone and, and forget all this other stuff. This nuclear has to be a big part of it because it has been a big part of it in the past. And it just it seems as if everybody's just kind of turned their back on it. And I'm not hearing too many reasons why they, they have done that, except that, you know, they want to embrace wind and solar. And I, I can understand that to a point. But why would you turn your back on something that's already working? It's a little bit puzzling. I mean, there has been a huge campaign um, by environmental organizations. And, and don't get me wrong, Bill. I mean, I consider myself to be environmentalist. I care deeply about conservation, about, uh, you know, uh, the climate, et cetera. Um, but environmentalists have sort of been the, the, their own worst enemy. I kind of call it scoring climate own goals. Because, again, they seem to have this ideological commitment that flies in the face of evidence um, towards towards closing nuclear plants. Um and so, you know, we, we can do better. Um, and and we've, we've done, you know, excellent things, again, right here in Ontario. Um, and I, I think, you know, hopefully once presented with the facts, environmentalists will come on board. Well, you'd like to think that there's going to be a little more open-mindedness about this. And, and like I say, I'm, I'm a little puzzled that the, the federal government especially uh, has, has basically written this off and, and you know, that put nuclear power with all the bad guys, you know, all the things that are supposed to be health hazards to us. I mean, as you mentioned earlier, you're a medical doctor uh, and, and, you know, you understand, you know, that there's, there's risks with just about everything, but it's, it's, you know, this is not the China syndrome. I mean, you know, we, we, I don't know if they've just all of a sudden reverted back to that mindset that these things can go nuts. I mean, yes, we saw some accidents at Chernobyl, uh, but that was a different technology. Things have changed now considerably. And uh, I, I, I just, I'm boggled, mind boggled that all of a sudden these guys just don't seem to understand the efficacy of what we've already got here. And, and it, you know, when they shut down Pickering, what kind of an impact is that going to have on the grid here in Ontario? Well, you know, it's puzzling, right? It's, it's, I, I mean, human beings have been burning things for a long time. Um, and we tend not to give a second thought to air pollution. Um, you know, again, those coal plants were responsible for six to 700 deaths every year, <clears throat> around 10,000 hospitalizations. Um, I mean, this was a major burden. Toronto used to be called the big smoke. We had 54 smog days a year. I had a, a friend growing up with bad asthma who basically didn't leave his house all summer because of how bad the air was. And we tend to sort of ignore those health, pack, health impacts and, and fixate on, on catastrophe. Um, the Canadian nuclear reactor, the Kander reactor, is an ultra-safe design. Um, we have a perfect safety record right here in Canada, and really outside of the Soviet Union, um, we've not seen any fatalities related radiation from nuclear power. 
Um, and that actually includes Japan, where you had three large reactors melt down at the same time. Um, you know, our own uh, radio, uh, CBC, uh, on the anniversary of uh, the Fukushima accident, claimed that 20,000 people died as a result of that nuclear accident. 20,000 people died as a result of the third largest earthquake we've ever experienced and a massive tsunami, which, you know, knocked down buildings, um, washed people out to sea. No one actually died from radiation um, at Fukushima. And so it's, it's this kind of public education, which is so important. And, you know, we, we did correct the CBC and they did retract that story and issue a correction. Um, but, Bill, it's, it's an uphill battle. Um, there, there's a lot of education that needs to happen. But again, we are seeing attitudes changing around the world. Um, and we are seeing a real move back towards nuclear. Japan itself is restarting their nuclear fleet. And that has a lot to do with, you know, how expensive uh, coal and natural gas have become. Um, and, you know, we're talking about, well, will Pickering be expensive to refurbishment, to refurbish? Yes, there's a cost there. But we've seen natural gas prices uh, quintuple in the last two years. And we're going to be burning a whole lot of natural gas um, if we shut down 15% of Ontario's electricity generation, um, which is clean nuclear energy, and, and replace it again with mostly frack natural gas uh, from Pennsylvania. Well, as you said, uh, you know, for the Canadian government's official position to be, well, we're just going to stick with the pack here, countries like Belgium and others, uh, seems rather flimsy. And uh, there's going to be some long-term ramifications to those decisions. And, uh, you know, I don't want to be, and I know you don't want to be the one to say, I told you so. So let's have some pragmatic thinking about this and some discussion in Ottawa. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks for having me back, Bill. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to focus on what's going on in Washington and more importantly, I guess, what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, There's a lot of rhetoric happening. Late last week, of course, we knew that Vladimir Putin uh, did not rule out, as a matter of fact, almost threatened the use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine. And uh, the U.S. has responded. Uh, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan uh, was on Meet the Press uh, on uh, NBC on the weekend. And uh, he says that if Russia crosses the line, there will be what he called catastrophic consequences for Russia. He says the United States will respond decisively. So I don't know exactly what that means. Uh, our next guest can certainly shed some light on that. Reggie Cicchini is the Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol, and he joins us for his weekly look at U.S. politics. Uh, Reggie, a busy, busy weekend. Thanks for the time today. Appreciate you joining us. Good morning. Listen, you've been following this story. You've been reporting on this now for, well, as long as the war's been on in Ukraine. But more specifically, the rhetoric seems to be heating up, especially between Putin and uh, and the White House. Is this chest-thumping, or are we really heading towards a nuclear conflict? I mean, look, given the the threats that we've heard from Vladimir Putin over the last couple of weeks, that that is an option that he is not taking off the table. I think that it is raising um, the stakes a little bit when it comes to how the West is now responding. I don't think that's going to have the West start backing away from its assistance of Ukraine, nor uh, its abilities to try and back uh, Vladimir Putin into a corner. But the simple fact that we're hearing the word nuclear, we are not seeing Vladimir Putin kind of step back from this this kind of you know increasing rhetoric obviously it is raising alarms not only throughout kiev but throughout the biden administration and, and as the russian foreign minister talked about over the weekend i guess as you say it kind of you know increasing the the, the risk here uh, he's also saying the, the 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 lands that they've taken over in ukraine that they currently are holding on to there is now considered part of russia and they will defend those with nuclear weapons if need be so it's a they're really turning up the heat here 
Yeah, absolutely they are. And look, these these referenda, so-called votes that are taking place across eastern parts um, of Ukraine are widely condemned by uh, most of the Western world. They're really only seen as valid throughout Moscow and throughout some of the, um, you know, the, the regions in eastern Ukraine that are kind of falling in line with what Russia is saying. But it's also saying, look, you know, this land is ours uh, and it's sacrosanct and that we are going to defend it uh, once it becomes us. So it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't. We are are going to do what we can to ensure that you know our war, our, our 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 you know claim of this land that isn't really ours, that nothing stands in the way. And I think that again is why you are seeing such a heated response uh, from Washington. Even last night, the Secretary of State uh, was on 60 Minutes, and he was pushing back to some of this rhetoric coming out of Russia, uh, simply saying that it is unacceptable. But you know, when you look at the broad um, conversation surrounding nuclear weapons. Uh, Antony Blinken making a point of saying, look, this would have obviously a broad impact on Eastern Europe. It would have a broad impact on the Western world. But at the end of the day, the use of nuclear weapons would also become problematic for Russia itself, really trying to say, look, this is not a path anyone wants to go down. I know everybody's weighing in on this. British Prime Minister Truss uh, said that, you know, don't back down from this guy. Uh, he's in over his head and he's, he's desperate. And, and that was the essence of it. And uh, our Prime Minister, of course, has made the same sort of claims. Uh, but do you get the sense, Reggie, that uh, once the U.S. draws a line in the sand here and says if they use this, and and, and I take it, you know, as, as you've been reporting, uh, you know, the, the comments, of course, from, uh, from Security Advisor Sullivan were rather guarded. They just said that they would respond. Uh, decisively. They didn't say they'd fire back. It's not going to be tit for tat, or is it? I mean, you know, once once you draw that line, you pretty much are going to be forced. If, if Putin forces their hand, they're going to have to do something more than just more sanctions, I would think. Yeah, I mean, look, sanctions have been threatened by the administration uh, already. But beyond that, um, you know, whether it is the president, whether it's the press secretary, whether it's the national security advisor or the secretary of state, nobody is pulling the cards away from the chest to reveal any kind of uh, plan that would be in motion. Uh, you know, again, on 60 Minutes last night, the secretary of state was asked, does does the president um, have a plan that would prevent World War Three? Uh, and 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 Secretary of State Blinken simply said, yes, he does. But they weren't going to you know, put that out into a public sphere. So this is something obviously that the White House, that the administration uh, is clearly focused on, but they are not going to do anything that would potentially put their own planning at risk, put their allies at risk, but also give uh, give the Kremlin something to be able to hold, you know, when it comes to how they are going to act. So, yes, this is to a point now where the administration is forward thinking. They are just in the mindset of we hope we don't have to go this far. And, and, you know, I, we, we have this, I guess, picture in our minds, Reggie, of, you know, missiles flying back and forth. As you say, if the Russians were to act first, and that's a big if at this stage, what kind of retaliation? And, and uh, there are other options, I would think. I, I know Blinken talked a little bit about that, uh, as did Sullivan uh, earlier in the day. Uh, they don't have to necessarily fire back. I mean, they, they, it might actually include ground troops, which I know is something that Biden doesn't really want to do. But again, it, I would think he's got to have to do something dramatic in return if that were to happen. 
Yeah, and I mean, we have to remember that uh, that that the the president and NATO uh, allies have said that they're not going to put troops on the ground uh, in Ukraine. Ukraine itself, not a member uh, of the alliance there. Uh, so this really becomes a logistics matter of, you know, what countries are going to allow for a more built up force along their borders to potentially push back on any kind of Russian aggression. But even if you go beyond ground force, there is always a possibility that uh, that, you know, new warfare can be uh, can be undertaken by any member of the West, and that being uh, from the cyber world. Do they go after uh, communications? Do they go after uh, the the kind of electrical grid throughout Moscow to try uh, and disable them in any other kind of way? I mean, these are options that are on the table. But again, the plans, while they do exist, they are simply not being spoken of. What about the work that, uh, that they've been doing with Ukraine so far? Uh, Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray, uh, was quoted over the weekend suggesting that, and Bob Ray's not a hawk. I mean, you've been covering politics on both sides of the border for a long time, Reggie. Uh, but Bob Ray said, look, whatever Ukraine wants, give it to them. If it, what planes, muscles, whatever. Uh, because, you know, he's, the suggestion was, is they've made huge gains right now. We can't turn our backs on them at this stage. Is, is that the feeling in the White House as well? Sure. And that's why you've been seeing these, you know, hundreds of millions and billions of dollars uh, in, in um, you know, levels of assistance that have been offered up by the administration through drawdowns, through the Department of Defense. And they have not slowed down, at, you know, much to the kind of chagrin of some Republicans and members of the Republican base who say that this is a waste of money when the U.S. has its own problems to deal with. The, the administration is not going to back down from sending equipment, from sending uh, uh, the training necessities that the Ukrainian military needs, but also is putting to use. I think it is worth from, uh, worth remembering here that, you know, we're seven months into this war and Ukraine has not backed down. Ukraine has also not fallen. And that is because of the aid and assistance that has been given to it by Canada, by the U.S., by, uh, by the NATO alliance. Uh, as a whole. And this is proof that even though there are not troops on the ground, the equipment is there and the, the kind of, you know, wall of support is there. And that is what is lifting uh, Ukraine and pushing them forward. And I think we heard it from the Secretary of State and from members of the administration that if Russia ends this war, the war is over. But if Ukraine stops in this war, Ukraine will be over. Uh, interesting, and it sounds like another pivotal week coming up here. Uh, and as Stephen Colbert says, meanwhile, uh, there is midterm elections, and we're getting very, very close to that, too. And the story that you talked to us about months ago, Reggie, it just doesn't seem to want to go away. That being, there are still a number of Democrats that uh, whatever happens this November in the midterms, uh, they would rather Joe Biden is not the Democratic nominee for president two years from now. Uh, I, I know you mentioned he has he's had a bit of a, an uptick in his, his approval ratings, but it's still hovering around 40 uh, percent. Is there a real possibility that there could be pressure to, to move Biden out of there for the next big election in two years? I think two years is a long way away, but uh, the sentiment right now is that Democrats are fearful that Joe Biden is simply not going to be strong enough to be able to, strong enough in the political sense, uh, to be able to take on whoever that 2024 nominee is. Yes, he already beat Donald Trump once, but we don't know if Donald Trump is going to be either in the race or the person who gets the nomination a couple of years from now, and there is a bit of trepidation amongst Democrats who say that we may need to put somebody else in there, even though there has been kind of a signal that Joe Biden 
does sort of intend to possibly throw his name in the race. He hasn't said no. He hasn't given a firm yes yet. But still, when you have a simple fact um, that 56%, according to new poll that came out from ABC and Washington Post over the weekend, 56% of Democrats want to see somebody that's not the sitting president take the helm through 2024 goes to show that even though there have been some significant wins, it is the simple way that Joe Biden has been governing for the last year and a half is not sitting well with the broad majority of his country and his own base. All right, just go down that road just a little bit, um, the, the speculative road, that is. If that were to happen, and, and you're right, we're still like a year and a half away from anybody making any decision in that regard, I would think. Uh, is Kamala Harris the, the natural uh, person that moves up to the next rung, or are they looking at somebody else? I mean, look, you know, she, she is... Um, you know, the number two in line right now, she does have a solid backing. But even when you look at the different networks that put out their different lists of who they think should be uh, the nominee, Kamala Harris is amongst those top five, including the kind of usual names like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or Pete Buttigieg. Uh, but I think that there is also a growing sound within the Democratic Party that it needs to be somebody who is not from kind of that mainstream line. And whether that is going to be a Democrat who is uh, a little bit more moderate uh, who may be able to work more with um, with the Republicans, whether it is somebody who is further leaning to the left, which may not have full support of the Democratic Party itself. You know, that's something that this party is going to have to work with as they try to kind of ease into the fact that they may need to go to the sitting president and say, we do not have the confidence in you. Does it mean Kamala Harris? Does it mean California Governor Gavin Newsom? That's still to be seen. But this is going to be an uncomfortable moment for the president to realize that heading into and beyond midterms, he is no longer the favorite within his own party. Yeah, especially if it does not go well for the Democrats in November, I guess. That's uh, really, I guess, going to accelerate that process. Uh, you reported the other day, of course, the uh, January 6th committee looking into the uh, uh, insurrection, of course, in, in the nation's capital on January 6th. Uh, resumes next week. Uh, Liz Cheney is the co-chair of that committee. Now, she's only got a few months left in, in government, and she did not win her primary, so she's not going to be running it for re-election. But Reggie, she seems to be making it her life's work in these remaining months to, to make sure uh, that justice is, is, is leveled at Donald Trump. I mean, she first of all says if Trump's the nominee, she's not even going to be a Republican anymore. But they really seem to want to accelerate this process and get something substantive uh, to do with Trump before they finish off. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and that hearing on Wednesday, we still don't really know who is going to testify. Could it be Mike Pence? Could it be the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, Ginny Thomas, who has kind of proven herself to potentially have played a pivotal role in the communications about overturning the election? That list is still unknown. So, too, is whatever evidence intends to be shown uh, in this what could be final hearing uh, from the January 6th committee. I think on the Liz Cheney um, conversation, that is potentially uh, when she talks about, you know, ensuring that Donald Trump is not going to be uh, the nominee in 24, ensuring that the that accountability for January 6th is put out in public or saying that she may not be uh, a Republican if Trump is chosen. I don't think Republicans are going to care at this point. They see her as um, not a member of the party anyways. They see her as a rhino. I think this is Liz Cheney going out on a high note uh, to show that she is that kind of last remaining bit of the old school conservative, the old school Republican Party that simply focused on ensuring that government wasn't involved in day to day life, not kind of feeding into the frenzy of QAnon and, and kind of metastasizing conspiracy theories. I think she is um, she is simply trying to push to say, look, I did everything that I could as a Republican. It's no longer good enough for this party. So I need to do what's good enough for this country. And that is why she has been so fervent in this attempt 
to get information out to the public, even though it cost her her own political job. It's it's interesting to see you know, the moderate Republicans, the way they've, uh, and, and even the not so moderate, uh, that may not have a, a favorable opinion of Donald Trump, uh, kind of hiding in the weeds right now. Uh, you know, McConnell's and, and the Lindsey Graham's and everybody else uh, that have been firmly in his corner right now, uh, they're not coming out against him, but they're certainly not backing him to the extent. It seems as if the, this mounting body of evidence that's coming up from a number of different committees right now, including the January 6th committee, including the investigation in Georgia, and the charges filed by the Attorney General in New York State are, seem to be having a cumulative effect, Reggie. Yeah, absolutely. And we can lump in there the Mar-a-Lago search as well yeah. of classified documents. All of a sudden, you have a president who had a lot of baggage, a former president who had a lot of baggage over the last couple of years going into and then outside of his political career. That baggage has kind of dragged along with him and is simply starting to get heavier. And this could become problematic for the Republicans, we've seen how there's been kind of a, a bit of a turn with uh, with the abortion conversation over the last several months that really has sparked interest for the Democrats. Donald Trump may simply become too toxic for this party to be able to, um, you know, move forward in a way that they want to. So this may be that opportunity, that turning point that Donald Trump can leave the party. Trumpism can remain in the party. And that's how they're able to have it going forward. But given the fact that, you know, Whatever this report is going to say about January 6th could result in a potential criminal referral here. Again, this simply adds to the problems Republicans have uh, when it comes to how they move forward, carrying behind them and trying to keep in front of them Donald Trump. Well, it's a big week uh, locally, domestically, and of course internationally for the United States. We'll be watching, as always, for your reporting on Global National this week, Reggie. Thanks for this today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, uh, Global's a reporter in the nation's capital down on the States, uh, with a lot of activity happening there this week, and we'll certainly uh, stay in touch with Reggie. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.